0: I love corporate prayer because I get to hear the Holy Spirit pray through other people things that I would never have gotten on my own. It's great to sit in front of my fireplace every morning and pray. I love that time alone. But there's something when I'm in the corporate setting that someone will pray something that grabs your heart. I pray every Tuesday and Wednesday morning at 6 o'clock with two different groups of people. Wednesday morning, we're normally at Stanford. There's a group of seven to 15 of us. We're right around nine people that show up, and we just start to pray. We're praying for God's movement in our area. In this past week, one of the prayers prayed these words. Lord, I know it says somewhere in your word that you adorn the humble with salvation. You know those moments when God's word grabs you? It grabbed me. I knew that was a word for the moment. Fortunately, I had my iPad and did a quick search of where it was. It was from Psalm 149.4, and the full verse goes this way. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. I was hooked. I knew that word was important. I knew it was something related to preaching today. So my antennas were up, and I went home, and as I was getting into my home and getting ready to start into the day fully, I received a text from my daughter Linnea, and she said, Dad, have you seen Uriah's coat? He left it here last week. It's a blue vest. And I said, I haven't, but I'll look in the closet. So I opened the one closet in the front. It's a closet that has nothing in it. It's the one we use when people come to visit, you know, you hang coats up, and There was nothing in there, but I found this one thing that I had not seen in a long time. It shows you how often I go into that closet. It was my letterman's jacket from college. Now, some of you are so young, I have to explain what a letterman's jacket is. Uh, When you were in college and played athletics, actually, you get it in high school. If you go to Strongsville, Ohio today, in the bedroom that I grew up in, I think there's a green one that says Strongsville Mustangs on it. Um, When you played a sport, you got this jacket that you got to wear, and it said something about your identity. Now, I want you to know, it's just a few years ago, I had 50 less pounds, but I'm still wearing it. I had a lot more hair, but I've gotten rid of that. But this coat said something, said I belonged to a group of people that I identified with, but it also had a sense of image for me. If I'm honest, when I wore this, I felt pretty good about myself. I was adorning myself. There's a very interesting imagery that's happening right now. As I adorn myself, you no longer see the cross that I wear over myself. Now, I know this is an odd story, and letterman jackets are long ago, and I know that you don't ever adorn yourself with outward things, (laughs) like clothes, houses, cars, retirement funds vacations, but I knew I had the word of the Lord for us this morning. The Lord adorns the humble with salvation. You see, we're caught in a trap. We are either going to adorn ourselves or we're going to allow the Lord to adorn us. We're in the midst of this Advent series following the scriptures from the lectionary, one from the Hebrew scriptures and one from the New Testament. The cry of the ancient people was, how long, O Lord? They were waiting for their Messiah. The cry of the new church was, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, because the decision to follow Christ caused them to lose everything. And the cry for the church today is still Maranatha because we all feel that we're in a land that's not complete. If you feel safe and good and complete and everything, I have a feeling you've been duped and that your well-being and your comfort has blinded you from one of the greatest things that God wants to do for you. He wants to adorn you With his beauty. So let's see what it happened and is said for the people of Israel. Verse 1 of chapter 61 of the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. This idea of anointing was a declaration about kingship and messiahship. Let me just remind you of what anointing is and was. When the people of God wanted to declare that something was set apart and consecrated to God, they would take oil and they would anoint it, outwardly symbolizing that that no longer could be used for mundane purposes. Uh, We still do the same today. We anoint people with oil for healing. We're declaring the holiness of the Lord over them in those spaces We anoint spaces. This building has been anointed so many times, it's amazing we don't slip when we walk in here. (laughs) The ancients would anoint the worship vessels to remind us that they were getting us to God. They were only as good as God's presence. See, when anointing came and was done in complete cooperation with God was doing, his spirit would be released in those things, in those people, in those places. There's an anointing on this property. Those of you who have been worshiping here long enough, you know, when you walk on this property, when you walk in this building, there's the presence of God. May God never take that from us because we take it for granted. That is the intangible, the anointing of God. The anointing of God takes the ordinary and makes it supernatural. One of the best pictures of anointing is King David. You remember the story Israel calls for a king, the Lord concedes and gives them a king. Samuel selects Saul by the leading of the Holy Spirit. He receives the Spirit, but when you don't cooperate with the Spirit, you will lose the Spirit. That's why Scripture says, do not grieve the Spirit. It's a real good warning for all of us in all times. We can have a full measure of the Holy Spirit, but can turn it upside down in a moment when we grieve the Holy Spirit. And Saul turned it upside down. Samuel starts crying to God, oh, why did I cooperate with their project? And God says, would you quit whining? Go find a king that I'll pour my anointing on. You're going going to go to Jesse's family. Now, can you imagine Jesse when prophet Samuel comes to his door? Jesse, I want you to know that one of your sons is going to be king. Come on, dads, that's a pretty good thing. Jesse does what you would do in that culture at any time. You start with the oldest and most prestigious son, and he prays him out. He's tall. He has all the essence of leadership, and Samuel thinks, certainly this is the one. And the Lord says, nah. The next son comes. The next son comes. And it's the same process over and over. And finally, Samuel looks at Jesse and says, are there no more sons? And he says, well, there's the punk out in the field. And this should tell you something about how God works. God loves to work with the punks. So if you're a punk here this morning, have courage. (laughs) Because God's going to do something unique in you if you will cooperate with him. The punk comes in and all the sons are kind of like this. You know this because you know about later stories of how they respond to him when he comes around. There's great jealousy there. And the Lord says this to Samuel. He says, arise and anoint him for he is the one. The scripture says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And listen to this, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Anointing changes everything. Now, let's put it in the context of the people at the time of Isaiah. King David has been anointed. The kingdom is the best it's ever been. His son Solomon does a pretty good job of consolidating. But as people of God have a way of doing multiple times is that when they get blessing, they start to forget God and they start to do things their own way. And over time, they lose the blessing of God. And what those people did is they divided the kingdom in their disobedience. There's a kingdom to the north and a kingdom to the south. It's called Israel and Judah from this moment. And God's presence was only effective by the Leaders who cooperated with what he was doing. Read first and second Kings, read first and second Chronicles, you will see a king who does what's right in the sight of the Lord and those who don't, and the results happening in the people's lives they either get blessing or they get curse. And the curse came, and the people in the north were taken into exile by the Assyrians. Now, folks, we need to transport ourselves. If we're going to read these scriptures truly, we can't read them through our present existence. Most of us will go home to comfortable homes. Most of us will celebrate comfortable celebrations this week. Most of us will be here for the lighting of the candles and have a glow in our heart. But you know what it's like to be a people that are in exile, that has no freedom and nothing to look forward to in the future. Imagine what it would be like for you and I to have another nation come tromping into our nation today and bind us up, and not just us, but our children and our grandchildren, and march us to another place and say, you will serve us from this point forward. This is what was going on for these people. They're waiting. Uh, What a powerful story of Jenny this morning. I'm going to pray for Jenny these next couple days. I hope you do too. God's birthing something really great there. She had to wait 25 years to be reunited. These people were waiting for decades and centuries. Because the promise was the anointed one would come and bring both healing and bring health. Listen to how it's described. Verse uh, 2. To bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Sorry, this is 1B. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Pastor Jackie picked this up last week, in the last week's one, that the Lord would come to bring comfort. The people were waiting for it. But it wasn't just a rescue and a healing back into relationship. God had something of restoration for them. He was going to adorn them. Listen to how the text goes on to give them, those who mourn, the beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. When you're in exile, you're not thinking about your headdress. This is all language of marriage. When you're in exile, you're fasting and there's ashes on your head and what God is saying, I'm going to exchange your fasting and your sorrow and repentance and I'm going to give you a beautiful headdress. I'm going to adorn you. I'm going to give you exactly what you need. To give you oil of gladness instead of mourning. I'd like the word joy there. See, joy is something very deep that stands in the face of our circumstances and says, my God is still a part of this even though it doesn't look very good. Gladness is what comes out of me when I've experienced joy. There is that aspect that's happening here, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. When you would normally be downturned, you would be declaring to heaven, God, you're still God, even though my circumstances don't look like it. And this is what the people back then were waiting for. It's what the people of the early church were waiting for. And it's still what we're waiting for. So what's my so what today? Eight centuries after Isaiah spoke, the Lord fulfilled his word. Follow me, this is fantastic. You know the story. Jesus grows up under the earthly care of earthly parents, Given to us by the Holy Spirit as he hovers over Mary, we have the God-man who comes. But his ministry is not initiated until he finds John the Baptist down by the river. He enters into baptism and in that moment, this heaven is parted and a dove, what was like a dove from heaven comes and descends on him, the Spirit of God Jesus, the ordinary person, becomes Jesus, the Holy Spirit-filled person in this moment. And the Father declares from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased and I love. Jesus' ministry is launched. He goes off into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. The first Adam fails in temptation. The second Adam is victorious because the second Adam is preparing a better way. He begins his ministry. The scripture says he began going out in the power of the Holy Spirit. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He said the kingdom of God was here. People began recognizing maybe this is the one promised from long ago. Maybe this is the one out of the spirit of David. Maybe this is the Messiah. And he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And as the visiting rabbi, which is interesting because he was not a trained rabbi, he would have grown up hearing the scriptures, but a visiting rabbi, they would ask you to read the scriptures for the day. Now, you've got to transport yourself to really understand what's happening. Back then, they had ancient scrolls that were really big, so Jesus couldn't have come in and announced, hey, today we're going to read from Genesis 43. The scroll would have been opened. And what does Jesus open it to? Isaiah 61. And when he finishes reading it, he says this, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He announced the anointed one was there. Three years later, the anointed one would become the crucified one. Three days later, the crucified one would become the risen one. A few days later, he would become the exalted one, and we wait for this Jesus. He is here ready to rescue us. Lord, would you pull the blinders off of any of us who are here this morning trying to think that we can rescue ourselves? Will you rescue us? Will you pull the blinders off of any of our family members who are out there wandering, who have not experienced your healing and your rescue? Would you release that this morning? Come on, Lord. Rescue us, but it's not just to rescue. He wants to restore. He wants to adorn you with His beauty. He wants to give you a headdress. He wants to anoint you with the oil of gladness. He's the one that wants to declare salvation over you. So, now what? There's only two ways to this. You heard the psalm that was prayed. The Lord adorns the humble with salvation. Step one get rid of your letterman's jackets. Seriously. Kill them. Kill them. Whatever you're putting your confidence in that gives you worth, kill it now. Your position, your projected image in the community, the power that you've been trusted in this life, any of those things, kill them. I'm not saying quit adorning yourself with nice clothes. You look so much better when you dress nice, so please dress nice. But would you quit taking your identity in those things? I'm not telling you to go home and take an axe to your house, but I'm telling you, lose your identity in those things. Those are gifts from God to be stewarded for his glory. Do not take any worth in the things of this world. Die to those things. Because who does God adorn with salvation? And you have a choice you can humble yourself or God will help you. That's a good time to laugh. G.K. Chesterton says this, takes a lot of humiliation to become humble. God loves me so much that he'll destroy what's good in me for the sake for me to get the better which is in him so humble yourselves that's the only first step because when you do all those things there's an unfortunate thing that happens as you lose connection with your position as you lose connection with your projected identity as you lose connection with all the things that are attached to your letterman's jacket you start to feel proud I should have got a loud amen on that one. So how do we do it? By magnifying the Lord. That's what the title of this week's message was in the lectionary, Magnify the Lord. You see, if I keep looking at myself to bring the things down and bring the things down, I'm going to stay connected to myself. But if I will magnify the Lord, what's it mean to magnify? Magnify is to make something bigger. Can you make God bigger? No, but you can remove the things that are making him small in your life and you make him bigger by praising his name. You make him bigger by declaring his glory. You make him bigger by serving those who don't get an experience of his love. You have a way of making him bigger. This morning I woke up so excited because I knew the Lord had a message for us. The first thing that I wrote in my prayer journal was magnify the Lord with me and exalt his name together. I knew God was going to speak something. He wants to kill idols in our life so that we would know him as the true and living God. We're moving into it now. I began reading John Piper about six this morning, sitting by my fire. He's got that book, Desiring God. When I don't desire God, I have to fight for joy. Why? Because God is most glorified when I'm most satisfied in him. That's why the prophet Habakkuk can say this, even though the fig tree does not blossom, even though there's no fruit on the vine, neither though there's no olives, they fail on the vine, even if the fields, there's no yield, there's no flock in the barn, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Magnify the Lord. You want to blow this Christmas up? Magnify the Lord. You want to save your family? Magnify the Lord. You want to save yourself? Magnify the Lord. You want to save our nation? Magnify the Lord. Folks, we're in trouble. We're in serious trouble. And you've had to endure me for 10 years, so you know I'm not a doomsday person. I'm a psycho utopian. I put that lettersman jacket on and I can still feel myself faking a pass this way and coming in and scoring. I live in another world. You don't have a clue where my mind goes all the time. But we're in trouble. If the church does not magnify the Lord, there is no hope for us. Chapter 61 it is, magnify the Lord. I think the Lord wants us to hear the Scripture again. Come on, folks. There's too much at stake. There's too much at stake. Let's not do this the usual way. Let's magnify the Lord. Amen.